Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And today we're doing our post-read for the first of the Binti trilogy. Um, we this- sure are. We always interrupt each other in the intro. In this episode, we will be um, going over the plot of this first novel called Binti. Um, It's a little bit difficult because the others are called Binti something else. So we're going over the the kind of the content of Binti um, and then talking through some of the themes that we found specifically in this book. Um, Kind of our usual content warning up at the top here. We will be there's there's pretty much there's one section of like a lot of violence in this book that happens fairly early on. Uh, Beyond that, I don't think there's a whole lot for us to mention there. Um, And in terms of spoilers, we will be talking about this novella in length, in depth, in length, length. I guess at length. Thank you. Um, (laughs) And then um, we will potentially mention stuff from the other two that we would consider like non-spoilery more or less. Um, but you know, the, 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 the real focus here is just on this like first novella. So if you've only read this, that one, you can listen to this episode. Um, yeah, I really highly encourage everybody who has any interest in Bindi to, uh, grab a copy of the book, go to your local library or, uh, pick it up, uh, yourself to own. Um, it's very short. It's a novella. It's only 90 pages if you have the paperback. And uh, it's a it's a quick read. And it's a really, really good book that we both like a lot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think we would encourage you to uh, to check it out before you listen to this episode. Yeah, I guess we didn't we didn't uh, put a space for that. But it's worth it's worth stating that we both very much love this book. Hi- highly recommend. Go read is good Plus one. A plus plus would, well, I guess reading for a second time right now. So would read again. Um, yeah. So we'll talk about, uh, you know, we'll do our usual, like run through the plot, kind of try to make that take like five minutes, uh, talk a little bit about the characters and setting and just kind of like play that out. Um, and then we had a couple of major themes that we wanted to talk through. Uh, one of that is, is sort of Binti's journey overall. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between like being from a rural place and being from a primitive place, because I think there's a lot of stuff in there in this novel. I think that's kind of an important piece of it. Um, we're definitely going to talk about, um, the relationship between, uh, the places that she comes from and the places that she goes and how, you know, there's some elements of ruralness and some elements of the primitive, but those, the tradition, traditional tropes that are associated with those ideas in the West, are totally mixed up here right? in really good, in really good and interesting ways. And, you know, that. I think are also just mixed up even in the real world in, in the West. And that's part yes, of what I wanted to yes. talk about. It's like we have these very <laughs> yeah. specific conceptions of these that I don't know how yep. true they hold. Um, we're also going to talk about the question of what is technology, because I think that's a question that the book like asks and maybe doesn't, you know, is, isn't super interested in answering, but I think is kind of an interesting question there, especially when you think about um, the different cultures that like, Binti comes from versus where the Medus come from versus the rest of the aliens and other humans and that kind of thing. Um, and then, and, yeah. yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to end it with talking about just the moral landscape of this book. Um, Cause I think it, it's really interesting. And it, it uh, very intentionally does some stuff that is not typical for books like this, which I love and I am excited to talk about. So with that said, I think Adrian's going to run through the plot for our first book fact. 
Indeed. And feel free to jump in if I miss anything big here. Uh, just wanted to run through this really quickly. So we're all on the same page. The book, book start. Fact. <laughs> book fact. Um, the book factually starts out with Binti um, running away from home, more or less. And this section of the book is very much in Binti's head. She's sort of, you know, telling the reader what the reader needs to know about, about where she is from, her family, um, but also where she's going. And it turns out that she's, you know, from a really rural family who happens to be artisans, but the thing that they build are, are what are called astrolabes or this technology that is used frequently in the setting. Um, and Binti is headed to the sort of like galactic Harvard, more or less, or galactic Oxford. It's the, you know, best, best, uh, university in the galaxy, which she's been accepted to. But to do that, she has to more or less run away from her family because her family wouldn't understand someone wanting to leave home. Um, so she does this, there's, you know, a little bit of tension along the way, but eventually she is on board the spacecraft that is taking her to this other planet where this university is and the university is the entire planet. Like the entire planet is devoted to this university, this kind of galactic university. Um, on the spaceship, we meet a bunch of characters and we kind of think we know where this is going. Like it's, it's very much following the structure of like kind of a typical school story of like, you know, like sheltered kid runs away from home, like meets a bunch of like friends and like, you know, develops friendships with them and enemies with them and relationships with them, like throughout the book. Um, however, about a quarter of the way through the book, as these relationships are being developed, everyone dies. <laughs> Um, and it turns out that the ship has been boarded by the Medus, which are a, an alien species who doesn't like the, um, the Kush, which are a different ethnic group of humans than the ethnic group that Binti is from. Binti is Himba, which is a, is a real ethnic group in Africa. And, um, a lot of the other, um, humans on this ship are Kush, which are sort of like a, I don't think an actual ethnicity. Um, we can, we can get through that later, but, um. So everyone dies except for Binti, um, and it turns out she doesn't because she has this piece of ancient technology called an Edan with her. Um, she gets sent to a room um, and eventually learns how to communicate with the Medus uh, through her Edan. It allows her to like talk to them, um, and she eventually, you know, to to wrap it up really quickly. Um, becomes a diplomat for the Medu. She says, you know, hey, you guys really hate the Kush and you kind of are really mad at the university that we're going to. But instead of, you know, going and invading and probably, you know, all of you are going to die because while you were managed to take over the ship, you're not a big enough force to actually like take over this entire planet. Um, why don't you let me do diplomacy for you and get back what you've lost and the reason that you're angry and kind of like settle the debt on both sides once and for all instead of like letting this war continue. Um, so the Climax of the book is more or less her doing that and, uh, you know, succeeding and the falling action of the book is her finally getting to become a university student after this very, um, very hard experience for her. Um, and yeah, so of, all, of, yeah, just to, just as a quick side, all, most of the action that's taking place in this book is they're on the ship heading toward the university. Mm -hmm. So literally it ends as they arrive and then that, that climax happens. Right. Arrive. Cool. So that's the... Um, so okay. the, well, the plot of the books, at least, <laughs> um, just to <laughs> run through really quickly. Yeah. You're real happy with yourself. <laughs> I sure am. Um, so 
the major characters that we're going to be talking about are Binti, who is obviously, like we said, Himba, a human. Um, her family kind of as a unit is sort of like a psychological unit in her mind. Um, there's a boy, Haru, who I don't know if we'll actually talk about him that much, but he's sort of like the human boy on the ship who she's like developing a little crush on. Um and he's then, a little bit of a stand-in, maybe, for the other characters that she meets, her like set of other potential classmates who all end up getting killed. Indeed. And then there's um Oku, who is sort of the the Medu's person who um she develops a relationship with, and that relationship starts off being very uh, antagonistic and develops the course of the novel and a lot of the novel is is the development of the relationship yeah and and maybe also worth mentioning the medus themselves among the other medus there are a bunch of other medus there's uh, among them their chief who has a role to play um, and then of course the uh their interlocutors on the umza university planet the galactic university planet who are the, the various professors and leaders of that planet right right um yeah, and so we also wanted to to just touch on a couple of pieces of the setting. Um, in the in the pre-read, I said something along the lines of it's a hard science fiction setting with a soft science fiction kind of like story. And rereading it again, I I stand by part of that. <laughs> There's definitely some sort of like um I don't know if it's if it's magic necessarily, but it's you know technology so advanced it may as well be going on. Um, it seems to be more or less set in a future world that could be our world. Although, like I said, the the Kush, from what I understand, are not an actual ethnic group. Um, it's like yeah, something we're, she's worth made saying. Up. Worth saying the the planet that that uh, Binti starts on is Earth. It's right. supposed to actually be Earth, and right. the, the I mean Himba it's people, in Africa. Right, the him she starts off in like what is what what would be in our time Namibia, mm-hmm. where the actual real world Himba people are from, um, but of course it's a it's a far future Earth with lots of spaceships and astrolabes, which are kind of like cell phones that also can, you know, like telepathic you know, cell phone iPads right. that let you like do math magic with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's there's a there's a lot of um, you know kind of. Uh, Relating to some of our discussion of Afrofuturism in the past, there's a there's a thread of thinking about technology a little bit differently from a lot of uh, other hard SF settings, how they might do it, right. and really kind of thinking about it from a from the perspective that organic materials and living things can be part of technology, but not so much in a, a super crunchy biotech way more in a right well i think it goes to a sort of a different conception of technology you know there's this western conception of technology as something to be used as opposed to like the conception here which is at times just something that is and it you know technology might be mechanical it might be computational it might be organic and it might even be social it might be you know psychological and it might be all of those things all mixed up together and you don't really like know one from the other yeah i i don't want to say it's not crunchy it is crunchy it just doesn't use the same language it it, it does exactly what you say adrian it it kind of just reframes the whole concept of technological implement to be something that it's just it's a it's a thing you have a relationship with you know everybody's astrolabe is a very personal thing and when somebody reads your astrolabe in this book 
like you might read somebody's passport in the real world or somebody's, you know, barcode on their their QR code on their phone when they get on an airplane. But when you do that in this world, it, it you know, it's it's um it's intimate. It's that there's a there's an emphasis put on the kind of relationship that you are having with this with this technology. Um, and as part of that, some of the some of the technology is literally alive, um, mm. which we'll we'll talk about more later. Right. Well, I think I think that goes to the the ship that they're on is literally a like living creature, is a shrimp like creature that is you know giant and has plants living inside of its lungs and is able to you know fly through space at like faster than light speed somehow. I just love it so much. <laughs> it's so great. It's I love so that. cool. It's so much cooler than like any other version of that that i can think of um, and it's worth mentioning alongside all this technology stuff is um it's it's seamlessly mixed in with some things that the stereotypical western perspective might not think of as technology but like that clearly are technological right. implements. well let's let's like, let's get to this a little bit further oh, yeah, when, yeah, we, yeah, when we talk about this in in depth um you know i think the other piece to just sort of mention here is that there are lots of aliens in this world and they all seem to like you know, coexist more or less peacefully. Obviously, the Medus are kind of this like big alien species that that we see a lot of, and they do not coexist peacefully with sort of whatever the galactic order is. And we don't really get too much into the the politics of who's who and what's what and who leads and how do these different, you know, species interact and how do different planets interact and all of that kind of stuff. You know, there's no, there's no galactic empire or republic or first order or anything like that, that or we, at least, federation or at least that it's, we see. Yeah. Or at least, yeah, we don't see anything like that. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, who knows? Right. We do hear, we do hear that there was a war between the Kush and the Medus. And the kind of shadow of that war, that that war casts on the actions of some of the characters is is relevant. They do seem to want to um, they remember it and they care about it having happened. Yep. Um, cool. Well, so, I think that's yeah. the end of book facts. Book facts. So, um, you know, we wanted to start off kind of talking about Binti and her journey, both like through the narrative as well as kind of like through. Her life in this book and, and what yeah. that means. I mean, you in particular, Adrian, were telling me that there was, um, in fact, you mentioned this last episode, I think, that, that there was something really personal, there's some really um, personal connection that you felt to uh, to her journey. It reminded you of your own life. Sure. Well, I think it's worth just kind of, you know, talking like like really at first, like this is a book where the 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 main character development is Binti's growing up. Like she starts out as a young girl going to university. And this is obviously like a structure that a lot of books from Harry Potter to Earthsea to the magicians to fucking whatever, (laughs) like have. (laughs) Um, But yeah. So, I mean, I think there's this really long tradition of uh, school stories. It goes back, I guess, you know, probably to the 18th, century um and uh really getting started becoming pop popular medium in the late 19th and early 20th century where it really and it's and it's in particular it's a english tradition uh that involves young boys or young girls going to boarding school um mm-hmm. and there are a couple of sort of exceptions to that but mainly that's the kind of core set of books and there are a few sort of famous series um, most recently, obviously the, the huge one is Harry Potter, but, mm. um, there's a lot of these, uh, a lot of, 
a lot of them that have been um, uh, in the British popular imagination, maybe more than the American popular imagination right. for a long time. Well, and I and, think there's in the American popular imagination, the sense that, you know, we, we imported that and like added magic, you know, and it's like magic school <laughs> is often the thing. And I think of, you know, Harry Potter, obviously, but also Lev Grossman's The Magicians, Charlie Jane Anders, All the Birds in the Sky. Like there's all sorts of these sorts of, you know, um, books where it's like, you know, take that, maybe age up the characters a little bit and do it in college. And all of a sudden it's like magical college. And it's this, you know, cause I think in, in American life, that's often when this, these themes are present, you know, you leave home during college and you, you know, learn a lot during that time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Um, but so this book does this really cool thing where it sort of sets up what seems like it's going to be one of those stories right. with all the classic tropes. So you've got your kid running away from home or leaving home, preparing to go to this school, which is very far away and is a right. different cultural sphere from where they're from. So the classic thing in the British. And there's some be, like specialness to the main character that like let yeah. them get into that school in the first place. Yeah. The classic thing in a British story would be that they are poor and they want a scholarship. And so they're going to yep. go to this sort of foreign magical world of posh people uh, that they don't really belong in, but maybe they're secretly good enough to like, actually be a star there mm -hmm. and, and get on the get on the um football team and and right. uh, and uh and then and learn all the rules of this new world and all this sort of special strange traditions that are associated with this new world right and i think in particular there's this you know the setting up of the relationships is such a key point in in the in the these books i mean with harry potter it's you know him on the train and he meets the whole cast of characters that are going to matter like on the train and kind of the train car that he's on and you know here you have them like all on a ship like going to school together and this kind of sense of everyone together for the first time like heading to the school for the first time um and setting up the relationship. So it's this really interesting thing where you, you're setting up these particular relationships. You're setting up the crunch and the, you know, crush, sorry, and the the <laughs> people they don't like and the people they do like and who their best friend is going to be right, and who right, their enemy right. is going to be and who the best friend is later going to be an enemy is going to be. You know, and you're setting all these things up and then like the Medus literally like violently insert themselves like through the chests of those characters, like into the narrative yeah. and the narrative like takes this very fast and sudden and drastic and violent turn at that point. Um, but that's also the point that like really starts Binti's narrative in a way it like really starts what's going to be her main character arc. I mean, in a way, like one of the cool things about this book is that it makes a pretty sophisticated commentary on these, on this, on this very well-developed genre. Um, one of the features of these uh, school stories tends to be that they are multi-book series. They're very long and they operate at a relatively slow and predictable pace. They're classic mm -hmm. serial stories. Mm -hmm. So you've got like 10 books in a series or more. You know, and each book is a year of somebody's life. And so you know that they're not going to die in the in any of the books because they've got another nine years of school to go. And you know that <laughs> every school year, the same similar series of things is going to happen. There's going to be dances. There's going to be sports games. There's going to be, you know, right. A right. new a new kid who arrived. You know, there's going to be this <laughs> this predictable series of things. And the and the pace is is very predictable. And so that's got its own attraction and obviously it's very popular and people like it. Mm -hmm. But this book, but like, you know, real life doesn't quite work at that cadence. 
at the cadence of a serial, a, a piece of serial fiction. And this book does this cool thing where it, it totally, it, in the, in the same way that real life has a habit of suddenly surprising you and knocking you off what you thought was this predictable train track that was heading to a predictable train station uh you just like something happens and you know oh whoa what do i do and you're completely discombobulated and you have to invent a new possible future for yourself and binti has to do that and so Mm -hmm. her her growing up story starts like so many children's you know it starts out seeming like it's going to recapitulate a book series that you maybe grew up loving and then it throws you a curveball and you have right. to invent yourself you know as somebody who hits curveballs or whatever right well and it throws her particularly like a trauma that she has to deal yeah. with for the rest of this book and also for the rest of the series i mean I, I, again i don't want to go into spoilers but it's you know the first couple of pages of the next book is her in therapy and her trying to like deal with the events of this book and deal with them in a you know hopefully he- healthy way um yeah. and also you know both both doing that kind of this you know therapy construct as well as her own like you know rituals from her own people um, so I remember Adrian, you were saying to me that one of the things that this book did for you was to give you, make you feel a kind of a real personal connection to Binti's journey here. Yeah. Um, well, I would say it, it, it ties into both Binti's journey as well as this piece of the like setting that she comes from. Like, I think, I think it, it's actually less her journey in particular and more this idea of, um, you know, and so I'm, I'm going to jump into the next theme a little bit and we can rewind at some point if we need to here. But, um, you know, I think one of the kind of questions this book, it's not even a question. I think it's actually a statement the book is making is that there's a difference between like being from a rural place and being primitive. Um, and I think that, you know, in Western cultures, we often think like combine those two things. You know, we think of like, you know, people who live in rural lives as being more primitive, whether it's, you know, nomads in the desert, you know, and, and that whatever sort of like constructs we have around what we think that life is like, or, or, you know, uh, I grew up in rural Alaska. I grew up literally like in the woods in a house without running water. Um, you know, it was very much this like, um, you know, I, I almost like 19th century existence in certain ways, but that isn't to say that, you know, like we didn't ha- also have TV, that we didn't also have the internet and connection to the outside world, that we didn't also, you know, like just because there is this sense of like, you know, I, I, I get this question a lot when I tell people I'm from Alaska is this question of like, oh, well, what was it like? And that's such a hard question to answer because the answer is like, well, when I was growing up, it was normal. I didn't know anything else. So they would just was what it was. It's not like there's a particular thing it's like to grow up. That's different for different people. Um, but then also like, you know, I, at the same time, like I, I knew that like the life I was living was different than the life that other people were living and, you know, knew that in some ways it was very similar <laughs> in other ways it was very different. Um, and so I just thought that that was really interesting that her family, you know, on the one hand is this like very rural like they live out in the desert they live in like a tiny you know more or less like homestead as as the way we would think about it in alaska which is just like their family and then kind of like a little bit of a village around that um but also her father like makes these like hugely technologically impressive pieces of hardware and he's like the best at it in the world 
you know, and Binti can tree like Binti is one like can just sit down and like do math without having to think about it. She can like meditate on math and like it will do itself for her. And she can even interact with the world by like doing math so well that way. Um, and she's so good at it that she gets into galactic Harvard sight unseen, basically. I mean, you right. know, they, she's from this tribe that has never sent anyone to galactic Harvard before Umza University. Um, and, and she gets in anyway. And, and she, you know, barely even, I think, it's not clear if her family even, you know, really wants her to apply in the first place. Right. But I think it's she, clear that they don't. <laughs> right. Yeah, like they don't right, want right. her to go. Yeah. That's why she's running away. And well, they definitely know. don't want her to go. Yeah. Right. Right. And, it, I, you know, there's some questions of like how much that is like her own conception of it. Because we only see it from her perspective in this book. But, you know, still, I uh, so, you know, that kind of stuff of like. You know, I guess my personal connection here is like I remember distinctly like growing up and like like sitting at home doing math and like not in the sense of like, you know, having to do my math homework or whatever, but just like remember one day I sat down and like started drawing out Pascal's triangle and tried to figure out like how many different patterns can I find in here? And I found a bunch of patterns that I'd never like seen before or like read about or known about in any way. And that, you know, the sense of like, Sure, just because like someone like lives in a rural area doesn't mean that they're dumb, doesn't mean that they can't think abstractly. Just because someone is poor doesn't mean that they're not technological, doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. Um, and, you know, I think there's, you know, I, I, I feel that I, you know, kind of have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder in that way about that. Like, you know, sick of literally being asked when when I went to like the, the Harvard of the U.S., Yale, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like you know i like i my freshman year i literally had kids ask me like oh have you ever like pet a polar bear which the answer is obviously no i didn't even live within a thousand miles of polar bears much less can anyone pet one but you know that that sense of you know this feeling of like you know i think i think with binti or nanetti has spoken directly about this like I, i've seen her write and talk and you know give talks about this sense of like you know, we think about Africa in terms of this, like, you know, like in terms of like the Himba living in the desert and, you know, like starving African children is this kind of like conception we have of like what African life is like. And, you know, and then when she goes to Africa, she goes to like, you know, giant metropolitan cities and sees, you know, like futuristic cities that are, you know, much more modern. I, I live in New York City and like a lot of these African cities are newer and better put together in a lot of ways than like New York is. Um, and even crumbling in, and infrastructure doesn't compare to their like new infrastructure. And there's yeah. And there's also a way in which like technology doesn't get distributed according to prejudice i mean people who live in isolated rural communities still have cell phones exactly. that can get on the internet and that's like a really good metaphor i mean yeah i think there's a reason why she uh created this astrolabe idea mm -hmm. because technology in rural areas today is from what i've read very well defined by uh like very highly technological and a good and a good metaphor for how technological it is is the wide availability of cell phones obviously there's a lot of other stuff right. too but but the fact that somebody who is carry I think this is actually something I'm getting from like having read Ninetti or heard her talk about it but the fact that you 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 might see a, a woman carrying 
water on her head because she doesn't have running water in her home in a bucket from the communal well back to her home. And as she does this, she's on her phone on Facebook. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a good metaphor in some sense for the uneven distribution of resources that we're talking about here, just because in, like infrastructure is very different from uh, sanitation infrastructure is a different technological and political prospect than access to then like intelligence and like access to communication technology and yeah. like this stuff isn't going to be distributed in a in a way that like you might think it was if all you read was uh golden age science fiction written by like <laughs> right you know guys that did, never really thought about these issues right and and you know i think there's two there's the the old um William Gibson adage like the the future is already here it's just unevenly distributed and I think that some of this you know question of like rural versus primitive comes down to the ways in which it's unevenly distributed because even you know like you know it's not just that like poor people are living or rural people or what whatever people are living like they used to like modernity is touched everywhere oh, yeah. and everything and everyone like everyone has cell phones everyone has cotton t-shirts you know even the most like uncontacted yeah. tribe you know like probably wears cotton t-shirts and like has access to plastic and stuff like that through trade so there, you know there's like there's no you know, hard and fast, like rule on this stuff. And there's not the divisions, the kind of like easily seen divisions that we would like to, to, to think that there are. And I think that's one thing that this book does very well. And frankly, like Afrofuturism generally does really well. And part of why I've yeah. always been really interested in, in Afrofuturism, because there's this weird way in, you know, I mean, I've said many times, like my, my town was almost entirely white. My family is very white. Like I'm very white, but like there's this thing about these stories that actually like remind me a lot of home in this way. Um, and so that, that to me was a lot of what I really enjoyed about this. And I think that the, you know, science fiction that gets you to question what science is and what technology is rather than simply presenting something and saying this is technology is interesting to me i think that's good yeah i i i really love that i love uh imagining young adrian uh treeing in his in your dad <laughs> in your dad's house yeah um that's really cool i also i just wanted to add like one thing that i i love about like when you take a real look at um, cultures that uh, are very different from your own, um, and if you if you if you can maybe try to, or if you get some help maybe from somebody who knows better than you um, to see from the perspective of them having their own agency, that's the that's even better than seeing what technology they have. Mm -hmm. You know, it, even more powerful uh, in terms of expanding your mind as a as a as a citizen of the world or whatever than seeing than noting which technological items you know and how diverse the basket of technologies a, a, a culture might have is taking note of their agency and how they have defined their own world for themselves i think about the fact that the himba people in modern namibia are not just some kind of backward you know, undeveloped cultural group. No, they are a people who have made proactive choices. Their leaders have come together to form political coalitions to advocate for policies by the Namibian government um, with a very sophisticated 
set of objectives in mind. And among those objectives, from what I've read, is the goal of maintaining, to the extent possible, um, elements of their older way of life. So the fact that they live the way that they do has a lot to do with them wanting to live. Like they're, 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 there's, It's more complicated than that. And I mm-hmm. cannot give a very... Uh, uh, rich accounting of of like himba life or himba politics but from the little i've read it 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 seems clear there's a lot of you know like with any group of people their agency is vital in determining their own situation and it's really and like a really cool thing about this book is that it in some sense is all about um taking seriously the agency and emotional perspective of like everybody who's involved in a Mm -hmm. situation or involved in a conflict Mm. Yeah. So I think that, you know, maybe, maybe that actually takes us back a little bit to some of the questions of Binti's journey in terms of her, you know, Binti has this like clearly like emotional journey and whatnot through this book, but there's also a sense of like physical change that she goes through. <laughs> you know, I kind of, of journey. yeah, totally reminds me of, I mean, like a lot of it is about her, you know, as you grow up, one of the big things that every person has to deal with is their changing relationship to where they came from as you yourself change and evolve Mm -hmm. what is your what does that do to how you relate to your family how you relate to your childhood friends how you relate to your culture of origin perhaps Mm -hmm. you perhaps you leave your home and you go to some new place and you learn some new things how does that change how do you feel differently when you go back home again Um, how do you feel about even if you don't go back home again, how do you feel about home? How does that change mm-hmm. differently? You know, and, and Binti, you know, this is since this is a very good book about a person growing up, it deals naturally with these issues. And uh, one of the things that it does that's really cool, that's a classic sort of fantasy or science fiction thing to do is to make literal the psychological or emotional journey that the hero uh, undertakes. Um, and so one of the things that happens to Binti is that she physically changes in ways that might make it difficult, although she doesn't go home at the end of this book mm-hmm. that happens later, but she changes in ways that might make it difficult for her to go home or at least make it feel different for her. Right. Um, right. She, well, I think yeah, she, she in particular, there's sort of like a loss of something and a gaining of something. So, um, throughout the book, she is putting, you know, constantly references, um, Ochi's, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, I listened to it and I'm still bad at pronouncing it. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, which is this, this mix of, um, clay and resin and oil, which is something that the, the Himba people in real life do cover their bodies with. And it's, you know, what they consider clean is being covered in this stuff. Um, and she, you know, has a limited amount. It is a limited resource for her. And throughout the book, she slowly like loses it by both using it up. And as well as like, she realizes at some point that, yeah, and this is, this is kind of this cool element of like her, her Ochi's is like has healing properties to the Medus. So, so the land where she's from literally like heals the Medus and it's part of how she manages to harmonize. It's part of how she manages to like put herself on their like good graces. Um, but in order to do that, she has to give up a half of what she has, you know, and it's, this very like, again, like kind of made literal like element of like, she has to give up half of who she is and half of like what she has in order to harmonize for everyone. Um, and the other way in which she does that is by giving up her hair and growing Medu's tentacles instead. 
Yeah, which she actually, uh, in another sort of literal uh, expression of how this often feels to people as they grow up, she doesn't notice until the very end <laughs> of the book. She, at some point in the book, is stung by a meduse, and this apparently changes her body. And she, uh, her hair is replaced by these meduse tentacles, which are called like okuoko, okuoko. I don't know how to pronounce it. Oku, um, Yeah, um, <laughs> which is the meduse word for... Uh, their own tentacles. Um, I'm not sure if it's a real word in a real language or not. No, I think the meduse is all just like my my understanding was that that was just like sounds made up because they make like yeah. puffy breath noises. Oh yeah, they're like these sort of jellyfish creatures right. that float in air and or not in air in in uh, in gas that is you know um, breathable to humans, but they mainly live in gas. That is not breathable to humans. <laughs> um, but anyway, so so uh, she gets Medu's tentacles instead of hair. And when she notices this, it's a very traumatic moment for her. It's a very emotionally affecting moment for her because it's it's the same moment when she confronts the fact that it might be difficult for her. It might really be hard for her to go home. Mm-hmm. Like she sort of knew that before, like you do. But she then is forced to face it in a much more visceral way when she sees herself with these tentacles and thinks what, which of the traditional men of my people would want to marry, you know, me now. And, uh, and that, and then she has to sort of deal with, with that set of emotions in maybe the next book. (laughs) I'm I'm curious, Matt, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a surprise question this episode. Um, so when I, I think I can think of several things that, you know, these, these tentacles might, be for me but like can you think of anything that they would be for you like what 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 things did you learn in college or did you you know gain in college that made going home more difficult for you Uh, that's i mean i never really wanted to go home i always wanted to leave right Um, i mean same but it's still like there's certain aspects that you take on i mean binti also wants to leave like but you know i'm sure there are things that you took on that you know made going back like different I, that's a weird one. Mainly, I guess I feel like I'm more at home now than I have ever been. Mm-hmm. I'm more at home as an adult than I was as a child. Mm-hmm. So I sort of don't know quite how to answer that. Um, right. Well, I can, I there, can talk a little yeah. bit about this because you've, you've, um, you know, you've been home to Alaska, Homer, Alaska with me once. I have, and, yes. um, you know, I, I think this is something I talked about on the trip that we all took together was, um, like language was actually one for me. And this is something I think mm. about because I studied linguistics and I've always liked language and everything. But, you know, I notice when I go home that, you know, growing up, I never thought I had an accent because, again, growing up, whatever you're doing is just normal no matter what it is. Um, and going to Yale, I never realized that I lost an accent or I gained a different accent or that my way of speaking actually changed it anyway. Like that didn't happen in a way that was necessarily like conscious to me or, 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 you know, accessible to me. And so going home, realizing that all of a sudden, like, you know, my parents and my friends like had accents that were discernible to me. And all of a sudden I had an accent that was different and discernible to me. Like just speaking the way I did in Connecticut, all of a sudden when I was at home speaking, the Connecticut way was audible and speaking the way, you know, the Alaskan way when I code switched back to switch speaking that way was also audible. And all of a sudden, like any way I spoke was audible to me in a way that like it never had been before. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I 
I grew up in uh, L.A., which doesn't have a discernible accent to uh, most Americans, I think. Right. No, I think um, I think so. And the other. And so that I didn't have that. The other piece for me was just like clothing, too. And I don't, yeah. I don't know if this was maybe true. I, and I think some of this is, you know, particularly going to this sort of like elite, like faux boarding school type <laughs> situation of, you know, like all of a sudden, like, you know, kind of like having just bought clothes over time and like dressing like more preppy instead of like outdoorsy or whatever it is, was was this kind of like visible thing that I could all of a sudden yeah. see when I went home. Yeah, I suppose the one way I can really identify with this is to think about how I really it's the the physical environment of Southern California. I miss every single day. Hmm. I and it's not so much that I can't go back to it as that I um, I can't ever, you know, you can't uh, you can't have everything. You can't have all the physical environment. And I, I actually, you know, now that I say this out loud, I'm sure if I did try to go back to the physical environment I grew up in, it would not feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> I just haven't. Yeah. So, but I, you know, I miss the weather. I miss the, the sun. I miss the air and the ground and the ocean and the trees and all those things, mm-hmm. the desert, uh, you know, mm-hmm. all of it. I mean, I feel that I miss the mountains and the ocean, you know, I don't miss the winters. I sometimes do. I sometimes romanticize them and I have to stop and be like, no, you don't miss the winter. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think that's also natural. That kind of like nostalgia is a a, um, strong and toxic influence. Yeah, that's funny. It's a good question. Good question. Cool. Talking about childhood. Man. Yeah, I know, right? Man. Oh, man. Cool. All, right. All right. So should we move on to the question of sort of like, a, you know, this ties into the rural versus primitive, but also to the, you know, I think to the tentacles themselves, which is this question of like, what is technology? And I think that's something that the book kind of presents as, you know, we talked about this a little bit, so I don't want to go too deep into it, but um. You know, in particular, I was struck on the reread of like, because the first time, so here, I'll, I'll, I'll just go back to my own personal experience of reading the book. The first time I read the book, I remember thinking like, wait, how did she get these tentacles? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, they're not from the same biology. So they probably don't even like share DNA. How would any of this happen? Like, this doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. And reading it this time, <laughs> I, I, you know, it was the one thing about the book that like, like stuck for me. Um but reading this at this time, I realized that, you know, it's because it's unclear if the tentacles are biological or are technological or are both because the difference doesn't necessarily exist. Um, you know, one thing that happens, too, is that the um, so the the whole the, the the major conflict, it turns out, is that the, you know, Medusa's chief has lost his stinger and the stinger is sitting in a museum at um, Uma University. Is that is that the right Uma? Is that... I think it's Umza. Umza. Right, right. Umza University. And, um, you know, when he gets it back, he is able to like reinsert it and rehab it, you know, and it's like all of a sudden the stinger works again and it becomes clear, like, you know, rereading and I realize like, oh, that's because like, you know, maybe the stinger is grown. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually a piece of technology that they consider a part of themselves. Maybe it's, you know, something that they have like designed over time to grow with them. Maybe it's something that evolved in one way and is now used a different way. And maybe it's just that their biology is different and is modular, kind of like a, you know, 
like a real jellyfish where like the, you know, the tentacles might mm-hmm. be actually different organisms than the body mm-hmm. or something like that. Like that they're actually like these combinations of, of things, both mechanical and biological and all different types of organisms and mechanics and biology <laughs> And, you know, I, I really I really liked that. And it was this thing that, you know, it was subtle enough that I actually missed it the first time around, like I said. Yeah, I mean, I, I love thinking about the technology in this book. There's so many things to talk about with it. Uh, what the, the way that I think about it at, at a high level is basically like there's this old class prompt that a lot of people in American education have probably seen a theme man versus nature. <laughs> um, if you've ever taken an English class in, in high school, you may have encountered this theme. It crops up all over the place in American pedagogy. Uh, the idea is that there is some kind of a dichotomy here. There is some kind of a mm-hmm. important distinction between humans and human civilization and the rest of nature and the natural world and animals and things that are not technology. And so the, a clear assumption is made that technology is different from stuff that's alive and the natural world. And it's, and these things are maybe even opposed Mm -hmm. or at the very least there's a clear line between them. And this is only like the crucial thing to do is to recognize that for the assumption that it is. This is only one way of looking at the world. In fact, it's a way that is pretty modern and pretty specific to a certain culture, our culture, uh, or at least mine and yours, Adrian. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, a lot of people throughout history uh, and a lot of people today don't necessarily think of it this way. And this was like sort of would not even necessarily make sense to them. Why would why in reading Moby Dick would you be prompted with the three words man versus nature and be expected to produce a five paragraph <laughs> essay? That's kind of ridiculous if you think about it the right way. Mm-hmm. In fact, like what this book, the the perspective that 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 this book seems to take is that, um, you know, there's no obvious distinction to be made here between technology and nature, between man and nature. Um, Not only that, um, things that are made and things that are not made aren't necessarily distinct. Um, It's really interesting to think about not only the, the, the Medus and the stinger, the chief Medus and his stinger, or Binti and her tentacles, but the astrolabes, for example, or the spaceship that they use. Mm -hmm. The astrolabes are sort of telepathic. They're almost like literal manifestations of a person's spirit or their soul or their essence. Um, But they're also like, we can easily understand them as an analog to a modern cell phone because they do some similar stuff. And then Um, the ship is literally a creature. Yeah, you know, no bones about a, it. It's just like a being that is, you know. Well, it does have bones, well, but yes. <laughs> does it? Or does it, does it have like, you know, chit I, I, I think know. it has I like, know. you know, like an who, exoskeleton. Who can say? Who can um, say? Who can say? But it's specifically called <laughs> shrimp-like, so bullshit on it has bones. <laughs> well, you know, um, if it really were. But, but right, it, it turns out that it's, you know, I, and I think this might actually be kind of early in Binti home, but it even turns out, turns out to have like feelings and like maybe is even conscious itself. Yeah. And, and to me, so to me, the very high level of this is that we just need to like forget the stuff we may have absorbed, or I need to forget the stuff that I may have Mm -hmm. absorbed in 
middle school or high school right. about i, I mean i assume of most of our audience is. is like a western <laughs> audience well i just don't want to this. make assumptions yeah. about other people but but so i need to forget these things that i may have absorbed and just have an expansive view of things and maybe one way to get at that is to think okay well one thread within my own uh past that i can you know look to to have to maybe get a more intuitive grasp on a different perspective on technology is to think about um there's a lot of uh environmental utopianism that maybe imagines a Mm -hmm. far future world where technology has become so advanced that it's become seamlessly integrated into the natural natural world and that's not necessarily the perspective that Nanidi Okorafor has in this book, but that's just one way that I can maybe kind of relate her perspective to a different one that I am more familiar with that, that, that then allows me to see, oh, okay, well, it's like that. And then maybe I can now take myself a little further beyond that to hers mm-hmm. and see it's like, it, it's just different. It's just like, I can't use the, the same concepts here that I maybe grew up with, um, which is great. <laughs> I love that feeling. I love the feeling that I'm just learning some new way of looking. There's a, just a different perspective. I love it. Cool. So um, I think the other kind of piece about technology that I, I just wanted to like hint on really quickly was this piece about um, museums. And I, this might even like fit well, kind of like move into the kind of discussion about diplomacy and the moral of the story, which is, you know, um, I particularly what I wanted to call out was when I was rereading this book and you get to the point where there's this, you know, like the crux of it is that there's like a, a an artifact stolen from the Medus by Umsa University and like they want it back. And, you know, the 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 entire tension of the climax is whether or not the university will give back this thing, because if not, it's continued war and they might reasonably not want to. Um, you know, I think that in the real world, we see plenty of examples of universities going to a place, discovering it in air quotes and like taking a lot of stuff from it and then refusing to give it back to the people who, who actually owned it. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, again, like kind of like we, we went to Yale and, and like the, the discover the Western discoverer of Machu Picchu was like a Yale academic. And there are a lot of like artifacts from Machu Picchu at Yale, um, in the various museums and in the various departments. And when we were there, like it was a big deal, like the Peruvian people wanted them back and Yale was like, no, fuck off. Like we have them, they're ours because we took them. Um, and, you know, and this is kind of like an interesting, you know, this, the same thing played out in, in, in the, the Black Panther movie that recently came out where, you know, Killmonger like goes to museum and is like, I'm taking these back because they're ours. They're not yours. This, you know, this sort of, a uh, uh, what's the, the famous line from Indiana Jones of like, it belongs in a museum is like, well, fuck off. No, it doesn't. It belongs to the people who own it. <laughs> you know, it belongs <laughs> to the people you're literally stealing it from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Try going to the British museum and telling them that about the Elgin marble. Right. I mean, I, there's so many examples of this that it's, you know, it's almost like, uh, uh, we, we could literally point out any 
Western museum and point out things that, you know, they, they yeah. don't necessarily rightfully have, especially in the view of the people who, who created it and the descendants of the people who created it. And I think that yeah. that's a, that's a, it's a cool question to be asking and it's a worthwhile one to be pointing out. And one that this book, like I'm being very like preachy and opinionated about it. Like I think much more so than the book actually is. Um, and that's, I think like one of the really interesting things that Nanetti does with this book is like gets to tell this story in a way that I think really resonates. Yeah. The book is anything but, um, preachy. It's just a very well-written straightforward narrative that, that is, that has a lot of interesting things happen in it that make you think, Mm -hmm. but it does not preach at you. Um, uh, so I just uh, to to add to that briefly, I think there's another example of the literal making going on here, where or at least like you know emphasis is added to this point that to this to this uh, point that you're making by the fact that the chief you know whereas in the real world we might be talking about relics of the past that are in museums, um, maybe the closest real world analog to what's going on in the book is Henrietta Lacks and her genetic material Mm -hmm. because what's going on in the book is that the chief like his body part has been put into a museum it's literally a part of him it's not Mm -hmm. metaphorically a part of him it's literally a part of him right which is another you know uh, it just emphasizes kind of the situation in a way that's really interesting that's a good analog to what we were talking about before with the making the literal making of having your body change. I mean, it's, it's a classic science fictional thing to do. Well, it's also, I mean, like the, the being like literally a part of him is also a thing that happens. I, um, in the pre read to the sparrow, I believe it was, I mentioned a, um, a PBS documentary series on like the first peoples. Um, and there's actually an episode that goes really in depth to a, there's a, um, Uh, like there are many groups of native Americans who like hold burial very sacred. And like, it's very important that like, you know, remains not be exhumed. And so when we, you know, when researchers, archeologists, et cetera, like go and, and dig up human remains who might be their ancestors, like that is very, you know, I mean like offensive to them. It's very, you know, it's like, it's stealing their body parts and stealing, you know, people from their graves. Um, and there's this really kind of interesting um, storyline that gets told in one of these episodes where, you know, there's a particular group of like Native American activists who are just like, we just like want this one body back. Like it's it's clearly ours and like we just want the body back. And, um, you know, the American university that owns it is, you know, saying like, no, it's not yours. It has these like different features. And so that means that it's actually from a different, like, you know, ethnic group. So we get to, we get to keep it. And, you know, it's interesting the way in which like this sense of like, you know, uh, like Westerners trying to do, you know, scientific research that I, I, I value. And I think it's good. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not shitting on like Westerners doing scientific research here. Like I actually like think this stuff is important, but like the antagonism there that they have with the native American people versus then there's a, um, a Dutch scientist who comes into the mix and, and more or less begins mediating between these people and does it. A lot of the, what he does is simply, he flies out the activists 
to his lab. He shows them everything that he's going to do. He involves them in the process that he's doing. He asks their permission before doing it and explains like why he wants to do it. And it's this really interesting thing if there's points where they're like, well, we don't want you to do this, but we understand the value of it. We understand that like you're trying to help us and like come to a real conclusion here. So we're going to let you do it, even though we don't like it. We're going to let you do the science that you want to do, even though it upsets us because we, we understand the value of it and because you valued us and our participation in this matter. And, you know, that that sense of, you know, going back to this thing we talked about earlier about agency being really important, you know, like the that the the kind of Western scientists take it or the American scientists take it through the court system and insist on like their right to have these remains and even, you know, insist that the science backs up their right. But then when like genetic, when actual genetic studies get done on it, it doesn't back up the right. Like it is actually like one of their ancestors and the genetics are really clear about that. And you know, they're almost unwilling to do this genetic research because it might prove themselves wrong and because they want to like have access to this thing. You know, it's, it's really kind of, I don't know. I, I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that it also made for a very like the end of the book was really effective for me because the entire time they were discussing it, I was worried that the final answer was going to be no. I was really worried that the final answer was going to be that like Umza university values science above all else. And so we get to keep this thing because we have it, because that's the thing that I've seen actually happen at the like institutions that I was oh, yeah. at. And oh, yeah. it was very tense and also, you know, yeah. like very satisfying when they like made the right call. I so agree. And I also feel like that story you just told, which I remember now is, is, uh, that was in the news. That was like a big, mm -hmm. that, you know, I didn't watch that documentary, but I remember that story. Um, that did not, I did not feel so, I did not feel as happy about the real life end of that story as I did about the end of this book. Like <laughs> right. that did not feel like the best ending to that. That felt like those activists getting browbeaten by reality in a way. I mean, obviously it was good that the, that they were involved more. It was right. better, I guess it was, it felt better right. than it had been, but it still didn't feel like they really got anything except a little bit more acknowledgement of their existence. They did get the remains back. Oh, they did. Yeah. At least okay. that was the, the, that's what I remember. I mean, they did because it would like the genetic studies show that it actually was their ancestor. Even so they though, basically won the court case. Exactly. I don't know if they okay. won the court case. They, 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 I actually want to step that back because I'm realizing I don't remember specifically how the like remains battle ended up, but the, the, the end of the like part of that, the documentary was actually covering was that the genetic studies showed like a different conclusion from the, like more just like phenotype studies um, that the American yeah. universities were engaged in and showing, and, you know, that like, yeah. Hey, like by, you know, having this fight, you're not doing good science. <laughs> you know, even what the whole yeah. claim here is that like, you need this body to do good science, but in like claiming that you're not doing good science was really, yeah, interesting. that seems really clear from, well, what I remember is thinking that that was really, really clear that these guys were totally in the wrong. And it's mm -hmm. also just the case that, it's a it's a positive attribute of this book that it shows a it shows a pos it it you know it one thing that science fiction can do and that's really really important is to establish the possibility of things and mm -hmm. the possibility of alternate futures um, in a way that's visceral and real as soon as you read it 
And I really like the fact that this book establishes a future where a reasonable negotiation between aggrieved parties yields the immediate result that the deserving party gets their just compensation. Right. In this case, the deserving party... In this case, it's maybe even more complicated than it is in the in that real case you just cited, because, of course, in the book, the uh, Medus commit mass murder as the first thing that they do <laughs> in the book, right. which is bad. Um, <laughs> but still, they shouldn't have taken the stinger because <laughs> that's <laughs> right. also bad. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but well, I think that's a really good issue. It's a really important thing to think about. And I, I actually am glad that you brought it up because I wasn't thinking about that as much during this book. I mean, I it clearly is a major plot point, but I was I just wasn't thinking about the resonance that that has to the real world as much. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that, you know, it ties into the final theme that you wanted to talk about, like what is what is being valorized? What is the like, you know, moral of the story? Yeah, it's I was more than just the moral. Yeah, story, I think that's this, this is not a, in a way this is not. Yeah, this is not a book that just like has a moral in a simplistic way. It's a it's I would say First and foremost, it's a great story mm -hmm. that grabs you and pulls you along. And um, incidentally, it's a sophisticated piece of narrative that gets at a lot of interesting ideas. And so as you are pulled along, you find yourself thinking. I mean, for being and, like 90 pages, like I, I just want to take a yeah. second. Like Nanetti is such a good storyteller. For being for 90 real. pages, there's so much packed in here. The structure is like so engaging and so like dramatic it's very dramatic one of the, so what i wanted to talk about a little is kind of the way that this book changes what the set of things that might be traditionally valorized by a narrative of its type mm -hmm. is a lot of traditional science fiction narratives or fantasy narratives uh in the west valorize um a set of traditional positive attributes things like uh strength and power and unyielding commitment to an ideal right um and you know other things too like loyalty and courage and, and and such like that but the 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 one set of ideas that is associated very often with the struggle between good and evil a very clear-cut black and white battle um battle type story um that set of ideas like commitment to an ideology or to a polity and um, commitment to just working harder and fighting harder than your opponent. Those sets of things are really turned on their heads in this book. And instead of valorizing those things, this book just assumes without even say saying it so baldly that harmon harmonizing and the skill of bringing people together and bridging gaps and the creative power to invent from whole cloth in a stressful situation a new idea for how things can go forward in a way that's better for everybody instead of just going along with the battle as it's presented to you. Those are the things that are valorized by this book. Those are the things that we're just assumed that are just assumed by this narrative are what people should be striving to do. Mm -hmm. um, and those things are so much harder and more important, I think, than commitment to an ideology or a polity. You know, mm -hmm. or or strength. 
to overcome some foe. Um, what Binti yeah, does. I mean, like, I think that this goes to the point that I kind of made in the pre-read episode of like, it's, it's, and this isn't just like, you know, we've ta- been talking a lot of like kind of Western values versus other ways of looking at the world, but you also just have like here, what I would say, like, you know, a lot of science fiction has these kind of like traditionally Western, like masculine values at heart. And, you know, in, in calling this book feminist, which I did in the pre-read, like part of what I meant is that like, it seems to have a different set of values than that. Like it has a set of values that are around like, you know, not just like being as aggressive as you can and like plowing other people over, (laughs) you know? Yeah. At no point are, and and at no point are those things even really considered as, as As potentials. No. Yeah. It's just what you're saying. No, well, I just, sorry. I just said the only other point I want to make is like, you know, the book doesn't also doesn't present these things as like being like feminine traits. Like the book doesn't present like harmonizing or diplomacy or talking as like inherently feminine. And that's not what I mean by like, feminist in this case but rather just like you kind of like we talked about with the cyborg manifesto of like just like splitting apart these dichotomies and like not like accepting them <laughs> as like the premise in the first place yeah yeah i mean i think one of the things that happens in um in science fiction is that even you know feminine characters are are kind of assumed to if they are laudable characters they're assumed to also have these these sort of yeah, these, I mean the like these. strong female protagonist is just this like trope that I. Yeah, well, so there's a lot to talk about there, obviously, but I I just want to say what I want to say about this is that it valorizes a different set of ideals, mm-hmm. irrespective of how they're coded in a gender way. Totally disregarding that, it doesn't. It's not interested in that. Although you know, it is also a feminist thing. It is also a feminist book separately, but irrespective of that, the things, the ideals, and the and the positive attributes it wants to hold up as things that we should aspire to you know in a story about a heroine who does larger than life stuff to solve problems that seem intractable in the moment and face dangers and obstacles that seem like they will overcome her and yet she survives and thrives and saves the day you know in a story like that the way that the heroine accomplishes these goals the way that the hero accomplishes these goals has nothing to do with being stronger or mm-hmm. or tougher or uh, more committed, but actually has everything to do with uh, creativity and a and a and a, well, a and being willing a, to a, change and change oneself. Yeah, 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 and 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 like being willing to 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 struggle in a in a very different set of ways. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love is that the you know as the tension ratchets up in this book and it really does ratchet up. Mm-hmm. I mean the book has so much tension. It's so tense. It's and it builds in such a powerful way. From the instant that the violence breaks out and the Medusa attack the ship to the end of the book is a thrill ride. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that long of a book, but it's like it feels so intense in such a good way, you know. Um but from but throughout that part, you know what it's building to, and and all the the conflict moments, the beats that are specific conflict beats that happen in the book are not violence. They're not moments of, you know, Binti fighting back and like you know one by one taking out the Medus to recapture the <laughs> ship or something like that. It's not no taken. they're <laughs> yeah no right. It's there, but they're moments of high stakes like talking. You know, mm. in in an organic and I also love it, it's in an organic setting. It's, you know, she isn't a agent of some 
government or agency receiving orders to talk through something in a specific way that's received down through the hierarchy. Um, and she also isn't um, in a in an artificial setting like a courtroom or something like that. She just kind of is a person in a situation and she has to figure out what to do and faced with just a totally insane, intractable seeming situation, her mind casts about and she just kind of hits upon the thought that maybe I can talk my way out of this. And it really feels like she might be wrong. Like, where did she even get this idea? Like, maybe that's not going to work out and she'll have to go to something else. But she just kind of, it really is able to capture the sense that you are on your own. Mm -hmm. She is on her own. Mm -hmm. She's growing up and now she's has to be an adult all of a sudden. Right. And part of being an adult means there's no rule book. There's no textbook. <laughs> You're not going to just get orders that yeah. following will then take care of you. That we're all kind of Make, making it up as we yeah. go along. Yeah. And people try to tell her things, you know, mm -hmm. and she still has to be an adult because mm -hmm. that's the way the real world works. She, you have to be an adult and figure it out. And, and you know, maybe you're wrong. I mean, may, she might, she has to deal with the fact that this is a tight, that standing on this tightrope, you know, if she looks down, um, she, you know, she has a really long way to fall. I mean, like if yeah. she is wrong, she is dead. And if she is wrong, like not only she is dead, but a lot of more people will die, both Medusa and human and other aliens. Yeah. And so being creative enough to come to this, she comes up with a way for the book to end for her mm -hmm. that won't suck for her or for anyone else. It just was really uh, reading it again, especially I was struck by how incredibly realistic it's the the situation of trying of creative problem solving basically is mm -hmm. in this book. Mm -hmm. um, and the solution that she comes to is this very mature, reasonable thing that she invented. And it's this act of invention that I love so much because that's what that's what like maturity is in the real world is composed of these continuous a, a continuous series of these acts of invention where you just make up a way for things to work out that is actually good. Right. And then execute <laughs> on it. <laughs> and then you execute know. on and it. That's the thing. Even when she figures it out, what she needs to do, she still has to like actually do it, which is a lot of the stress of it, too. Which is really yeah, cool. and unexpected stuff happens in the middle where she has to give up her edan, for example, mm -hmm. which she didn't know that she was going to have to do. Right, and it, that's that's an idea that Okuo has, and that you know changes the calculus in the moment. But she still goes along with it, and right, it's it's so cool, and so it's really cool. To, it's really cool to me that um, there's a combination of the the morals of this book. I think are great. It's one of the reasons, maybe the biggest reason why I love it so much, other than the really insanely cool technology stuff. Mm -hmm. The 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 book uh, does not tell you, but shows you how to grow up and be an adult in a good way, in a way that is really good, in a way that I want to do. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's probably worth mentioning kind of on that, that like Nanetti wrote the book at least to a certain degree with the help of her, I think teenage at the, at the time daughter, like her young daughter who gave her, you know, advice on like what, what plot turns to take and stuff like that. And she, you know, beyond just that, like wrote it with her own daughter in mind, which is really cool. That's so cool. I love that. It doesn't feel like a book that a child dictated to an adult. At no, all. no. It, you, you wouldn't necessarily know that unless. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, is there anything else that we wanted to talk about or should we slowly wrap this episode up? Um, 
I wanted to ask you, Adrian, yeah. if you could design a sweet piece of tech for this world that hasn't been mentioned in the in the books yet, like say you live in this world, right? And you you know the astrolabe market is all sewn up, right? You know, but you want to you've got a startup idea, you've got a new tech object idea. Don't, don't all right, ask me that. <laughs> you put me on the spot with these like absurd, like open ended <laughs> questions that have like no no guardrails okay, right, whatsoever. All right, all, right, all, right. all right, all right, I'll do a different one. I'll do a different one. Different question. I have a different question for you. Totally different question. Totally different question. Okay. Very serious. No, no laughing. If you laugh, you lose. <laughs> Definitely losing. Would you rather? I like this be, already more. <laughs> yeah. Would you rather be a shrimp ship or yes. a Medusa? <laughs> oh my God. This is actually a really good question. Damn it. Uh, I think I'd rather be a shrimp ship because Hell being yeah, a would. shrimp ship seems pretty fucking cool. The coolest. Right. Are you kidding me? Like the Medusa are all about like shrimp honor and poking people and fighting and being angry and being like stuck up and you know whereas the shrimp ship the shrimp ship gets to just float around space having shrimp ship babies like it's awesome and, yeah and you get to have plants in your lungs right that's dope and like you know it's like like war happens like inside of you and around you and whatnot but and again this is talking a little bit about binti home but like the shrimp ship shows up again and like it's hey is hanging out and doing its thing and like seems pretty happy about the whole thing oh man so all right, one more question, one more question. Go for it, question. go for it. Would you rather be able to tree, but you can never go on the internet again? Or would you rather have access to all of modern-only technology? Hmm, hmm. Just to be, I don't know if we actually ever like mentioned treeing before. That's the sort of like mathematical meditation that Binti does is called treeing. Um, you know, the, I would, I would say that the one criticism that I have of this book is that I still, even on reread, don't think I really understand what treeing is or what it looks like or what it's actually doing. And not just like, not in the sense that like, I want to know physically how it works. Like I want some sort of techno babble explanation for it, which is it's more that like, I'm not necessarily sure what Binti feels like she's doing and what goal she's achieving by treeing and how she's achieving those goals. So from that perspective, I'm just going to have to say modern technology because that's something I can like wrap my head around. Whereas treeing still feels a little bit ill-defined to me. And I wonder if you actually, you know, like throwing the question back to you, like what, what, what do you think treeing is exactly? Uh, that is a great question. I don't think there's a really clear, specific definition of it. Mm -hmm. But like there's some way I, in which it's going into a meditative trance. Yeah, I mean, so like basically the way it's the way I interpreted it is that it's like to bring it all the way back to the culture. It's what minds do when they play in math world. Hmm. Right. It's, it's existing abstractly. It's, it's, I think there's a, here's a, let me get this quote here. Yeah. So, um, to talk about treeing, uh, so she's on her ship before the violence has happened 
and she's hanging out with her future classmates. Um, uh, And she's talking about how these classmates, she actually totally gets them and they get her. They're the same kind of people. It's so great. For the first time, the same kind of people as me. Um, They were girls who knew what I meant when I spoke of treeing. We sat in my room because, having so few travel items, mine was the emptiest, and challenged each other to look out at the stars and imagine the most complex equation, and then split it in half, and then in half again and again. When you do math fractals long enough, you kick yourself into treeing just enough to get lost in the shallows of the mathematical sea. Yeah, I mean, and I think the other, like, there's some cool moments where she has certain like numbers or equations that like feel good to her, you know, and that like calm her down or whatever. And so, but I think, I think at the end of the day, I'm still going to have to go with like modern technology over treeing without yeah. the internet. Cause I still, I don't, I don't know how useful in my everyday life treeing would be. Whereas I literally make my living doing work on the internet. So <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I guess I feel like it, it, it helps. It's both a way to, um, progress beyond the physical plane into a realm of spiritual enlightenment. Mm-hmm. At, at another point, she talks about how, like, you know, the better you are at treeing, the closer you get to like finding God. Right. But in a very literal way. Right. Um, it's that, and it's also, you know, it gets you into Umza University. Like, it's a specific skill that has applications to the science totally. that they do in this world. Totally. And you need to do it in order to do science and math and stuff. Right. So. I feel like it's like it it it's like both meditating but also helping you understand math at a really 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 high level. Right. Well, you know, I can meditate and do meditate in the real world and don't necessarily want to understand math more than I want to make a living on the internet. So, I'm oh, still going to go with the internet. Still going to do it. <laughs> I asked this question only because I am tempted. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> you seem to believe uh, I have chosen the incorrect answer. I don't know, man. I don't know. If I could tree, maybe I'd know. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that's that's it for us. I asked my question. I asked my impossible question that you weren't able to answer earlier. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> Give you a taste of your medicine. Throwing it down the gauntlet. <laughs> oh, I love Throwing it. Throwing down the gauntlet. Well, so this has been a fairly short episode as these post-read episodes go. We're going to do two more of them, kind of like one each week this month, which is... Uh, I think a lot for us, so I wouldn't expect us to have an episode a week in future months, but we're doing it this month. Um, we're doing it. We're doing it. Um, so I'm looking forward to next Tuesday, we'll talk about Binti Home, and then the Tuesday after that, we will talk about Binti the Night Masquerade, which we'll both have read for the first time by then. So, um, you know, as always, a big shout out goes out to all of our listeners. Thanks for making it through at this point. You know, if you want to talk to us about this, please, you know, our Twitter handle is at SpectologyPod. Uh, our email is at SpectologyPod at gmail.com. Um, we do get people tweeting at us and um, emailing us and it's great we always really appreciate that um also this month on twitter i'm trying to tweet at least a couple of like a different afrofuturist works of art every day as a sort of way of like you know highlighting a bunch of different kind of like black and african and caribbean work in science fiction um and that's been a lot of fun and you know hearing what other people have to say has been cool too um 
you know, feel free to submit this episode on Reddit or any other places. Share it. Tell your friends about it. That's, you know, please rate us five stars on iTunes. It's a pain in the ass, but we have we have three people who have rated us on iTunes, which which is like warms the cockles of my heart. It's really cool. It warms the cockles of my shrimp ship heart. Trace, you could be quattro. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah. And then, you know, as always also thanks goes out to WJ on SoundCloud for the music that you're hearing right now. Really cool spacey stuff. Search him there. Uh, Noah Bradley at noahbradley.com for our artwork. And, um, yeah, thanks. Thanks to everyone else for listening. Um, thank, thank you guys. Yeah. This is Adrian out. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs>